welcome to another episode of The Watchdog with me, Loki, here on Mint Press. Week in, week out, we are going against the grain and covering stories which are regularly marginalized outside the earshot and the eyesight of the masses. For that reason, we hope that you can support us by liking, sharing, subscribing on this video, but also supporting us on Patreon or with the recent uh, fundraiser drive that we have in order for us to continue independent media. We do need your support and we appreciate the near 200 people who have supported us so far on our fundraising drive. Thank you to every single one of you. Now this week we have a very, very special guest, someone who I have been fortunate enough to share a platform with several times. And this episode will pertain to someone who I would say is the political prisoner of our time. At the time when the United States took the decision to go to war in Iraq, this is something tens of millions of people across the world in many different demonstrations uh, protested against. This was something that even a government like the government in France stood against and did not want to go along with. What we saw was a decision taken largely against the will of the populations that these political elites ruled and a decision which many in the Middle East and wider um, had a deep, deep aversion to. So at the very time when bombs were raining on a 4,000-year-old civilization in Iraq, when some of the most important historical sites were being desecrated by the most advanced military which has ever existed in the history of humanity, somebody took all of this anti-war feeling that he had from his background, from his already existing passions and activism, and found a way to directly work with those within the US military to make known what Donald Rumsfeld called the unknown unknowns, to make us aware of the way in which our taxes were being spent and essentially policies that we deeply disagree with were being pursued around the world. Some of the most deeply heinous and hideous aspects of the Iraqi and, and Afghan occupations by the US, Britain and allies have been revealed within the WikiLeaks files. We're talking about millions of documents were made available to the public to understand truly what was happening. And what do we see today? We see the person that took that leap of faith and knew they were risking their life. We see him now in a situation where he is certainly one of the most demonized human beings of our time. He has been stripped of all humanity and rendered among the unpeople. In a way, his willingness to take up and defend those who had been dehumanized on an industrial scale, he became one of them. When he was revealing uh, Reuters workers and journalists on the streets of Baghdad being shot at by Apache helicopters and recording, and the recording of the, the reaction 
of the US military personnel to what they had done. Um, he became one of those people through his, his loyalty to them. And today we sit in a situation where the people that took these deeply unpopular decisions and policies have gone on to make tens of millions of pounds, at least, just off the mere fact that they were there at the time. Tony Blair is undisturbed by his legacy. You do not see him being confronted regularly, and you certainly do not see him being stripped of his humanity in the way that Julian Assange has been. Quite the opposite. You see Tony Blair treated as an oracle, as somebody who is one of the adults in the room, as someone who possesses great wisdom about how politics should be carried out. And what about George Bush? You see him delicately humanized as someone passionate about painting. You see all the intricacies of his humanity when he's presented by popular US talk show hosts who fall over themselves to ingratiate themselves with this warmonger of a person. And so that really leads us to our guest today who has also ex experienced this you know, entirely extraordinary situation from a very specific angle, from an angle that would allow her to appreciate elements of this story that many of us in the general public do not have the opportunity to. She's somebody who is struggling relentlessly, who's been part of building, you know, a key part of building this fantastic movement, this historic movement to free Julian Assange. He's currently been in Belmarsh for several years. And from some perspectives, it seems maybe on the brink of extradition to the United States, where the US has made clear that it hopes to give him 175 years under the Espionage Act. And the use of the Espionage Act against a journalist in this manner is something that would be great to get into with legal expert Stella Assange and also the wife of Julian. Thank you so much for joining us today, Stella. Thanks for having me. Well, to start with, I'd just like to ask, you know, how are you in, in the midst of this machine with lots of moving parts? There is a, a human story of people trying to raise a family. How are you doing? You know, how are you feeling through all of this? Well, I'd say it's a, it's a daily struggle. It's up and down. Um, it's being pulled in different extremes. So the prison life is part of our daily life because Julian is there all the time. And he's been there for the past four years and three months. Um, and all our interactions are within that prison context. They're either phone calls from the kit prison, which are interrupted every 10 minutes. Um, and then he can't call back and I can't call him. Um, our phone calls are only certain times of day. They're limited by budgets. He can't spend unlimited funds on his telephone calls, even if he could. 
even if, if he had the money, um, it's limited by the prison, how much we can talk. Um, and then, you know, so there's a, the daily struggle. Uh, we see each other once or twice a week for an hour and, and a bit at a time. And then there's the other perspective, which is the kind of drawn out um, fight and just the thought that we have been apart and and Julian's been in prison in a single cell in the same space for over four years is pretty difficult to to uh, to really um, understand. So I was in my mid-30s when Julian went to prison, and now I'm 40. Um, when I met Julian, he was 39, and now he's 52. So, and he hasn't been, I met him, when I first met him, he was already under house arrest. His, his freedom had been restricted. And you just think, okay, even if we get through this, even if we are able to be together, which I do think is, you know, we, we should win this. We can win this and we should win this. We'll still have been robbed of our lives together. Our children will have been robbed of their early childhood with their, their father. Um, you know, we're, we're never going to get that back. And Julian's health in the meantime has deteriorated because this is what a prison does to you. You lock a person in a cage for um, days and months and, and years and deny them sunlight, exercise, healthy, health, a healthy lifestyle, healthy food. Um, and then that shortens their lives. It's just undeniable. And this has been done uh, as an act of, of cruelty. So the, the enormous injustice of it, sometimes you stop and think, how is this even possible? But on the other hand, there are also huge shows of support. Um, you know, I think, I think finally, uh, even in, in the UK, uh, a lot of people who were previously maybe not interested or moved by Julian's situation are starting to wake up to it. Mm. On that subject, who would you say has surprised you in terms of those that have stepped forward and expressed support for Julian over, the, over this period? I think it's opened my eyes to a lot of, um, you know, I think political orientation is, an, is no predictor to, to finding people with compassion. Yeah. Um, I've I found that uh, there are a lot of, there's a lot of, uh, yeah, compassion and care from people who have nothing to do with Julian um, and but who just recognized injustice. They have a, a, a natural sense of justice. Um, and then there are some people people who are who are perhaps more psychopathic, who describe themselves to be um, perhaps more, I mean, this is no no generalization, but I'm just saying that you know, people align themselves with a the politics that is supposed to be about care and compassion and actually behave in quite a, a, a callous manner. I think uh, it's, it's certainly opened my mind and disposition to, 
to just um, not try to have any prejudice towards towards people who you know I I've been very pleasantly surprised and and connected with people I never expected to connect with, and at the same time, you have some actors like um, some of the previous media partners, people who have known Julian, who um, at the time when it was cool said would um, you and, know and financially benefited as institutions from. Yes, and financially benefited and won prizes and so on. Um, and, you know, talked about how important WikiLeaks is and uh, to to exposing war crimes and, and defending victims. And then when it comes down to it, uh, they just have been silent uh, when Julian's been imprisoned and they've stopped talking about WikiLeaks' importance. Uh, maybe because at some point became costly for them in terms of their social capital. I don't think that's the case anymore. Um, but, you know, I think we lost some people along the way where they, where Julian was betrayed. And at the time it came to no cost to them. It actually came as a benefit to them. Um, but to flip now and show support for Julian will, would expose how, they betrayed him. Yeah. Um, so I think there's there's some of that. But on the other hand, I think, you know, I, I, I don't really care so much about what's in the past. I think it's much more powerful for everyone to be able to come together and say, Julian needs to be freed. And that includes Julian's, you know, strong support base that has been there um throughout i think it's important for for them to also invite people to come on board and you know when julian's free then then we can we can revisit some of the past mm. but now is not the time so where do we stand with the case today well julian's situation is critical i mean we're now at the in the end game, as I've said before, what's happened is that the High Court has refused Julian permission to appeal. Um, and this is quite incredible when you consider that what the High Court has affirmed is a decision from January 2021. Um, in which, uh, you know, uh, for example, um, several new uh, crucial developments had, had not even happened at that point. So the most important one was that there, there was a, a very extensive investigation by three national security reporters based in D.C. These are three, you know, like D.C. insiders who have never expressed any kind of sympathy towards WikiLeaks and in fact are in a probably quite a, a adversarial position, um, but who um, produced this incredible, um, incredibly uh, in-depth 
serious investigation, which revealed that during the Trump administration, Mike Pompeo, who we knew was obsessed with WikiLeaks, I mean, he had given press conferences about it, but he had discussed assassinating Julian in the White House at the highest levels. And that Mike Pompeo had had ordered his underlings in the CIA when he was CIA chief uh, to produce so-called sketches and options about how to kidnap, rendition, or kill Julian. And this has never been denied. The CIA never denied, denied it after the story came out. In fact, Mike Pompeo confirmed it by calling for the sources uh, to be prosecuted under the Espionage Act. Not for libel, but for espionage, for disclosing true information that was classified. Sorry, that was that was national defense information, i.e., true information. Um, and the Spanish court has summoned Pompeo to respond to these reports. And this re- these reports, you don't you don't publish something like that lightly. So they had over thirty, that's three zero, over thirty sources, both named and unnamed, in the Trump administration, National Security Council, uh, and CIA, uh, very senior people confirming these reports. So it's not, um, there's been no refutation. So naturally, um, with this information, the, the natural thing, the fair thing, the independent thing to do would be to throw out the entire extradition. You can't possibly send Julian to the country that has plotted his assassination. I mean, that's pretty straightforward. And yet, the high court, a single judge in the high court has just thrown it all out. Um, this is just one of the arguments, but it's a very compelling one and a, a, an obvious one, right? Um, so this judge just threw out uh, the the application for permission to appeal in a three-page judgment and said uh, nothing, there's no arguable point here. I mean that's not um that's not a logical thing to do. So uh Julian has one final move here in the UK and that is to go to um separate panel of two judges uh who will review the original judge's decision and hopefully come to a different conclusion. But I think it's it's quite extraordinary that the High Court doesn't even want to hear Julian's arguments when this is the most important case for press freedom globally. And it's not just us who are saying it, as his family or his legal defense. It is all every major major human rights and press freedom organization are all saying the th- same thing. The New York Times, you know, published an editorial saying this case goes at the, to the heart of the First Amendment. The Washington Post said the same. The Guardian, even the Telegraph and the Daily Mail have said that this case has uh, a major impact on press freedom globally, on journalists' ability to do their work, on, you know, on setting a new standard in which you can just put journalists in, in prison for publishing the truth. So can you tell us a bit um, about this potential use of the Espionage Act to prosecute a journalist? Why is that dangerous to everyone else as well? 
well, there are just different aspects to this, but um, so Julian has been prosecuted under the U.S. Espionage Act, and this is a piece of legislation that's from 1917, so during the First World War, um, it was enacted to be able to prosecute people who were publishing pamphlets against the U.S. participation in World War I, um, and for a hundred years, it was not used against anyone, um, or actually, it was used a couple of time, times, but conservatively, uh, against uh, journalistic sources. I think it was it was used on two or three occasions, and um, in one case, the person was pardoned. Um, it, it just wasn't a tool to be used against uh, whistleblowers. And that changed under Obama. And under Obama, uh, the Obama administration prosecuted three times as many journalistic sources as uh, all the previous um, administrations combined since 1917. So the Obama administration is the real turning point in which it starts being used against whistleblowers against journalistic sources. Then the Trump administration came in and then took it even further and said, well, we're going to, we're going to use the Espionage Act against the journalists as well. As well. And um, they could do that because this piece of legislation is really broadly worded. It's vague. It doesn't, um, it doesn't uh, forbid the publication of classified information per se, because the classification system in the U.S. didn't exist until the 50s. It said national defense information. It doesn't define what that is. Um, It's just basically what the U.S. government says it is. And so if you use a piece of legislation and change the purpose of it to fit something else, like journalism... Uh, then you get a really uh, uh, distorted um, uh, situation. So in in Julian's case, uh, you see this often described. He's 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 being charged for espionage. No, he's not charged for espionage because the U.S. government is not alleging that he passed information to a foreign government or anything like that. That's not their case. Their case is that Julian received information from Chelsea Manning, who was this intelligence analyst in the U.S. military based in in Iraq, um, and who had access to this information and was um, shaken to the core of her being when she she, uh, was reading all these reports about what was going on and evidence of, of war crimes, for example, in the collateral murder video, which she described. And she then decided to give that um, to the press and initially tried to the New York Times, the Washington Post. They didn't want it. And then she sent it to WikiLeaks and WikiLeaks published it. And so that's what the U.S. accuses um, Julian of, of, of receiving, possessing and communicating this treasure trove of information which laid bare the reality of those wars, of the torture regime, of the way the U.S. government, through its embassies, strong-armed European um, 
um, European investigators into not um, prosecuting, extraditing um, U.S. personnel who had engaged in torture and so on. So it's really an attack on the ability to to expose wrongdoing and not just wrongdoing by your own government, but wrongdoing by a foreign government and a foreign government, which is the most, or at least has been for decades, the most powerful um, country on earth that has conducted, you know, um, coups and invasions and violated uh, international um, uh, conventions and uh, against torture and committed war crimes and so on. If you as a journalist, as a journalist from whatever country, but especially if you're not from that country, are gagged and imprisoned for exposing their criminality, it all becomes a big farce. That's what it is. It's a farce. Um, and through this case, they're basically dismantling the entire system that was built after World War II. For journalists, it also normalizes the imprisonment of journalists because Julian is so high profile. I mean, someone who, who has no profile has no chance. Um, Julian, I mean, he's been... he. he he was monstered for many years, but he has a lot of allies, and he has a lot of pa- allies who are who are, you know, world leaders. Um, I mean, the Pope received me ten days ago. I had a, a private visit with the Pope. And it is worth mentioning that some of WikiLeaks' um, work did reveal some stuff that the Vatican wouldn't have been best pleased about coming out at the time. So it's quite interesting that that, that that would have happened. Yes, I think um, I I commend the, the the Vatican for for seeing the bigger picture here. Yeah, um, it's you know you can't say the same for um, you know obvious uh, other countries. So Julian has. The allies, I mean, one couldn't help hope for better allies, not just talking about the Pope, obviously, but, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, all the, all the press freedom groups and the, and the human rights groups, uh, you know, maybe they could have reacted sooner for sure, mm-hmm. but they're all on side now. Yeah. And so the fact that Julian remains imprisoned in despite all of that support is really, um, is really disturbing. It's a disturbing X-ray of, yeah. of the relative power uh, distribution yeah. in in 2023. An interesting part of it is that Manning was, of course, I mean, as far as I understand, pardoned. So it's interesting that the source, you know, has been pardoned, but the publisher is still going through this process. You also mentioned earlier. Um, about the sort of validity of even if within even if you accept the tortured logic of what's going on that 
obviously we know it's a show trial which is proposed in the US but even if you accept that some type of legal process is going to take place it's not only what you mentioned that should get it thrown out of court um, could you tell us a bit about UC Global what happened in the Ecuadorian embassy and why else that would render any sort of supposed trial completely um, invalid when we were in the embassy Julian was in the embassy between 2012 and 2019 when he was arrested and taken to Belmarsh. And during that time, um, we knew that there was a a lot of um, very disturbing uh, things going on, but we didn't know exactly what they were. Um, the security company that was working there, UC Global, was collecting information from us. Some of it was overt, but some of it we found out only after Julian's arrest. And in fact, we had some, we had some information about um, how sinister things uh, were getting while we were still inside the embassy. So uh, in December 2017, uh, uh, someone who worked for the security company followed me out to the to Sainsbury's. I went to get lunch and then he popped up there and he said, I need to talk to you. Uh, the baby that you come in with, you shouldn't bring him in anymore because we're being asked to do some very strange things. And this was someone that you recognized from within the embassy? Or was it yeah. a person you'd never seen before? It, it was a person who, who, um, I, who had been in the embassy yeah. for you know, I had seen him pretty regularly by that point. Mm. Um, and and he said, well, for one, one thing is that they've asked me to um, to steal uh, the nappy of this baby that you're bringing <sighs> in. And uh, they've told us that they, that, that they need it because they want to analyze the DNA. Of course, mm. at this point... Um, our relationship was not public knowledge. We had taken great care to try to keep it private, even within this extremely <laughs> surveilled, spied-on space in the, mm -hmm. of the Ecuadorian embassy. Um, and our, our eldest, Gabriel, he was six months old at this point. And so we had to, well, I, I uh, yeah, wasn't able to bring him in after that point, I think I brought, I, I actually did it once more through someone else mm. after a few months. Um, but that was basically the, the, the last time Julian could regularly see Gabriel. And then they were also, we found out much more afterwards, when, mm. after Julian's arrest, uh, there were some of the workers for UC Global who then became whistleblowers, went to El País and then uh, went to Spanish police and gave them information about what they had been up to. And the Spanish um, legislation allows for um, charging Spaniards who have uh, violated the law abroad to to be prosecuted. And this is what um, has 
what's underway in Spain. So the the uh, director uh, of the UC Global is under investigation for for having spied on Julian's legal meetings because of what transpired uh, through these whistleblowers who also possessed some of the material that had been collected during that time. So they had hard drives um, with recordings of meetings with Julian's lawyers, um, you know, legally privileged meetings where he's discussing his legal defense in case of extradition, in case of a, of, of a case in the United States, and so on. That Those recordings were taken to the United States every two weeks, and we have so much detail now about what was going on inside the embassy uh, because some of the people who were actually doing it then um, blew the whistle. And in the last few weeks, we've learned that the hard drives that were seized from Morales, from this uh, UC Global um, CEO or whatever, um, his hard drives had actually been, uh, hadn't properly been copied by Spanish police. And some files from those hard drives had been withheld, had not been mm. given to the court, to the, to the investigators, uh, to the prosecutor. So this is, uh, we're still trying to find out how this could have possibly happened. Um, but what's clear is that the original um, drives contained directories that said embassy, it said United States slash CIA slash embassy slash, um, you know, Julian Assange. So it's, it's, that was what had been hidden. removed, hidden, removed. concealed. So it, the, the, the full picture becomes clearer and clearer. And the full picture is a extraordinary criminality on the part of the United States, not on Julian's side. I mean, Julian was just doing trying what to live. he was. Well, he was trying to live and he, he has done nothing wrong. Yeah. Uh, and, and on the other hand, you have the, I mean, this is kind of a, a pattern, right? The CIA um, committing crimes, plotting to kidnap, plotting to assassinate, um, violating attorney-client privilege, uh, trying to get uh, gen genetic material from a baby. I mean, it's just... Lawless. Yeah, lawless. Mm. And... I'm also interested in what kind of role was envisioned for the British in the plan to potentially assassinate Julian on British soil. Um, do you remember that? Well, this this investigation went into it a bit, but it hasn't been properly fleshed out. And this is something that I really think the British press should have jumped on and asked for answers about. So the article, which is, I think, 7,000 words, um, says that the U.S. was speaking to 
UK counterparts. It doesn't say explicitly that they were speaking to them about assassination, but about um, potentially kidnapping Julian or apprehending him some somehow, or maybe um, if he left the embassy. And what's clear is that the U.S. had people on the ground. Because, of course, as you know from Ansikoulas, um, there are CI operatives among us. Both I mean, hopefully thousand. not too close, but yeah. <laughs> but they're 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 operating on on UK soil, and so there was a, uh, according to this article, the the British um, side said, uh, "We'll do the shooting," um, because what they had planned out was possible scenarios of ramming ramming a car that Julian was in, even if it was a diplomatic car, right, with diplomatic immunity, ramming it, or shooting off the the tires of a plane if he left in a plane, and completely, completely insane stuff, you know? And and it seems there that at that point, the Brit- British authorities said, no, we, we'll do the shooting. We'll do the... I, I'd really like to know more. So, I mean, it's important to mention that after this amazing revelation came out through Yahoo, you have within it the implication that the British would aid the US in a kidnap plan of Julian Assange, in which the British were allocated the job of doing the shooting, right? Quite what doing the shooting means we don't know the full details but we have some idea of all the branches of the bbc this revelation was only reported by bbc somalia just so we understand how uniform this is we're talking from bbc english bbc BBC arabic bbc persian not one of them covered it apart from bbc somalia so this was the sort of level of um, cover-up, we could say, of the Yahoo story. Um, it is fascinating to see that process whereby when the mechanisms of demonization were fixed so solidly on Julian, some of the people who benefited most from his work and his, and his risking of his life became part of the mechanisms of demonization. But then as, you know, a large part due to the work that you and many others have done, has clarity has been achieved, we can say. But when that clarity has been achieved, some of those that along that trajectory have, have both benefited and actively demonized him are basically missing in action. Um, but it's interesting also that you say that you're, you know, you're focused on the future and you feel this is a battle that we can win. Can you explain why you feel that way? Because in a way, one, one way we can read the story is a, a kind of story of invincible power. Another way we can read this story is continuous cracks within the wall of a monolith. So whether it is the 
the contradictions that create something like WikiLeaks in the first place, the lack of consensus within the US military um, infrastructure that then leads to whistleblowers coming out and showing this stuff. And then, of course, what happened with UC Global. There's not a consensus, obviously, within this company that this is the right thing to do. So things start coming out. And then, obviously, the Yahoo investigation. There's, there, there was, at very high levels of US power, there are people seriously unhappy with this, we could at least say, if we're, if we're looking at those sources for the Yahoo investigation. So is that something that potentially contributes to this, this hopeful outlook? that you still have. Absolutely. I think, uh, and because I'm following it very closely, I, I see this, uh, how controversial this case is, even internally in the United States, throughout each of the administrations, including the Trump administration. It's true that the kind of uh, extremist zealots uh, i.e. Pompeo, um, got the upper hand. But that doesn't mean that there wasn't resistance within. I mean, thirty over 30 sources were willing to speak to, to Yahoo. I mean, and that's a deeply unpopular policy then. If you can say there's 30 people within an institution like that willing to speak to media like that, it's unpopular what they're doing, even within it. Yes, and, and in fact, they, these sources even said this was the most controversial thing uh, within the intelligence community during the Trump administration. So, uh, and, and the reason for that is that it is an outright criminalization of journalistic activity, of journalistic work. The, the way I see it is we have to win this. We have to win this because it's not like, um, look, it's already a departure. Um, in order to free Julian, all that needs to happen is for the norms that have long existed to actually be enforced rather than be actively violated. Because by keeping Julian in prison, you have to violate all sorts of rules that have that have been there for a long time including um basic rules of freedom of expression and freedom of the press that exist in an open truly democratic society and what's happened is partly that there's been a willingness over time to to violate um those those protections um there's also been uh a, a multi-pronged attack on WikiLeaks, financial, reputational, etc. Um, and then at the same time, there's been a, a bigger trend towards uh, censorship and ever greater uh, um, abuse of of power by the state and. Uh, you know, partly because the state has grown more powerful and the state has become more diffuse. So the surveillance mm. powers of the state, big tech's integration with um, those surveillance and censorship powers, uh, 
the way it's all become very unaccountable, mm. um, the way that the, the five eyes basically are also integrating at a completely unaccountable level that, that rests above democratic oversight. Mm. Um, so we've, and just the, the way, for example, that the U.S. is applying its its espionage laws extraterritorially to a foreigner in the U.K. Yeah. So all these things are complete breakdown and departure from what has long existed. And the only way to start grabbing back and is is to try to get things to back how they were yeah. um, 10, 12, 13 years ago. Mm which was when WikiLeaks published and when maybe I think democratic transparency, accountability, et cetera, was, yeah. what as, was at its strongest. Yeah. And there's been a backlash and we're fighting against that backlash generally. And if we fail, mm. then there's, it's just, um, if, Julian, if Julian's case isn't, capable of reversing this trend then nothing is capable yeah. of doing that because it's just such a clear case yeah. where julian was publishing evidence of crimes very the the gravest possible crimes being yeah. committed against tens of thousands of civilians war crimes you know you have it in black and white you have it in bl mo moving images yeah. um you have the numbers you have the places you have it in in high definition yeah um, Absolutely. And so if if exposing the gravest crimes is not uh is yeah. not protected, then yeah. then you know, then it's then then you know, this is it's all just a farce. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um Stella, unfortunately we are um out of time, but I just wanted to ask you to let the audience know what exactly they can do um, to stand with Julian and support him and the next actions that may be coming up to support him. Right. So um, I have a um, Julian, free Julian Assange, free Assange emergency toolkit, which will be updated um, as um, on an ongoing basis. And um, I'll share the URL with you. Um, there's also a few books people can read. Um, Neil Smeltzer, the, um, uh, the trial of Julian Assange. Um, he was the UN special rapporteur on torture. It's a very good book. Also Stefania Marizzi, um, WikiLeaks and its enemies. These are great books. Uh, ITV X has the documentary following Julian's father and me as we fight for Julian's freedom. Um, it's called Ithaca with a K, I-T-H-A-K-A. -A. And um, follow me on social media, Stella underscore Assange. Um, and I'm very active on social media. I've opened DMs. Uh, don't extradite Assange.com has a newsletter. Just be engaged and come to the protest. It's really important to not just be engaged online, but to actually show um, your support in person because uh, I can't tell you what an important effect that has for, for Julian, for us, uh, for the cameras. Um, 
to show that Julian has support that is solid and persistent and has more resolve than his persecutors. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Stella. I appreciate your time today. Thanks. Thanks.